is it wrong to start a relationship that you know won't end well? And thinking along similar lines, is it wrong to rebel if you know that you've got absolutely no chance at winning? These sorts of questions are all pretty relevant to the book that we're looking at in today's episode. It is A Looking Glass World and it's by Feng Jitai. And this is going to be the second Feng book that we will have done on the show. The first was way back in the relatively early days of the show when we did Faces in the Crowd. Now there was a voice who did a reading of that book on that episode. That voice was from none other than Mr. Daniel Lee of Sinoist Books, which is um, an imprint of Elaine Charles Asia Publishing Limited. I think it's the full name of that company. Anyway, Daniel is my guest for this episode. He'll be talking to me about a looking glass world. Really excited to have him here because he was kind of like my colleague and my boss for over a year when I was doing or helping out production, helping out Sinoist Books with their production. So yeah, very exciting to be doing this book, which I actually myself worked on. So it'll be quite a different conversation from what we're used to on the show. But anyway, before we get to that conversation, we're doing the True True Fake News, the translated Chinese fiction news. So first up in news, wasting no time here, I'm going to share a panel that was recorded and posted online that you can watch. The panel is called Generations of Voices in Chinese Literature. It was hosted by theworldofchinese.com and the three... Um, panelists on the show, if you can believe it. Sorry, I've just given it away there. The three panelists on this panel have all been guests on the show, if you can believe it. One is actually this episode's guest, Daniel, and he was on there with um, Yang Ge, who came on a while back to talk about Strange Beasts of China with her translator, Jeremy Tiang. And then the other uh, third panelist is Emily Jin, who came on to talk about a video game, uh, Gujian, uh, way back on this show. So... Uh, I, I, I have not watched this one myself, but um, I, I guess the topic is exactly what it sounds like, talking about the different generations in Chinese lit. So think like post-80s, post-90s, and, and so on. So yeah, that's that. The link is in the show notes, or you can just Google it yourself. Next news item. So something new just dropped. New Chinese science fiction just dropped, actually. The book, or maybe it didn't just drop, I think. No, I think it is available for pre-order, actually. Yeah, so a, a book that you can get your hands on soon, if not now is uh, New Voices in Chinese Science Fiction. This is a Clark's World and Storycom production, basically. So if you've not come across Clark's World before, they are a, I think, mostly online, not sure if they do print as well, a magazine that does all sorts of kinds of sci-fi, but they are quite into uh, Chinese sci-fi. They have a lot of short stories from Chinese science fiction writers translated to English. And this book is a collection uh, of, of, I guess, Various sort of less well-known authors. So I'm just looking at the list of authors who are included in this book, and uh, none of them are uh, authors who appear in Ken Liu's two anthologies. So they are uh, Shuang, Shimu, Liu Xiao, Yang, Wan Qing, Hui Hu, Tongyun Muming Gu, who is very cool by the way, Liang Qing San, Shi Hei Yao, and Liu, not Liu, Liao Shubo. So authors that I I think I really only know one of these authors myself. So new new Chinese sci-fi and translation, basically. You should check that out. I've popped the link in the show notes, or again, you can just Google it. It's called New Voices in Chinese Science Fiction. Okay, the last of our free news items. It's another new book. It's Rouge Street. This has been released by good old Pan Macmillan, Macmillan Publishers. It's got an absolutely gorgeous cover, and uh, it's a very interesting looking, well it's three novellas actually, so interesting looking book comprised of three novellas and it's a Jeremy Tiang translation, so you know, it must be good. I'll just read you the blurb because why not. 
Here we go. An inventor dreams of escaping his drab surroundings in a flying machine. A criminal trapped beneath a frozen lake fights a giant fish. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, let's keep going. A strange girl pledges to ignite a field of sorghum stalks. Rouge Street presents three novellas by Shang Tao, the lauded young Chinese writer whose frank, fantastical short fiction has already inspired comparisons to Ernest Hemingway and Haruki Murakami. Located in China's frigid northeast, Shenyang, the author's birthplace, boasts an illustrious past. Legend holds that the emperor's makeup was manufactured here. But while the city enjoyed renewed importance as an industrial hub under Mao Zedong, China's subsequent, <laughs> China's subsequent transition from communism to a market economy led to an array of social ills, unemployment, poverty, alcoholism, domestic violence, divorce, suicide, that gritty Shenyang epitomizes. Orbiting the toughest neighborhood of a post-industrial city whose vast, inhospitable landscape makes every aspect of life a struggle, these many-voiced missives are united by Shang Shuetao's singular style, one that balances hard-scrabble naturalism with the transcendent and faces the bleak environs with winning humor. Oh, good word, environs. Rue Street illuminates not only the hidden pains of those left behind in an extraordinary economic boom, but also the inspirations and grace they nevertheless managed to discover. Phew, quite a long blurb, but I enjoyed reading that. I, I wonder if Jeremy wrote it or contributed to a draft. So that is all for the Church of Fake News. That's all for our intro section. We're going straight into the interview with Daniel. So uh, without further ado, buckle up. It's going to get cheeky. So on the show, we have the elusive Daniel Lee. Daniel, welcome to the show. It's quite fun to have you here. This will be a little surreal for me because you're sp someone I must have spoken to probably hundreds of times before. Um, so I'll, the, my formal uh, host's persona might might be crack a few times here, but we'll, we'll just see how it goes. Anyway, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, thank you, Angus. Uh, I, I, as a, as a longtime fanboy of your show, um, it's uh, so it's surreal for me as well to be on here. Definitely, uh, I I can guarantee you that I'll definitely crack from my uh, smooth presenter persona. So that I normally have. So uh, I think we can both uh, get into that together. Well, uh, thank you for, again very much for uh, welcoming me onto the show. Um, my name is Daniel Lee. I am the uh, production and marketing manager for uh, a small independent press here in the UK called ACA Books. Uh, we specialize in the best of Chinese literature and translation. What you probably know us better as is the fiction imprint of Sinoist Books, uh, of, of ACA Publishing called Sinoist Books. And we focus on some of the best award-winning uh, literature and fiction coming out of China, basically. Uh, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> All right, lovely. Um, I guess we can talk about the book then. First thing I want to talk about uh, our book for this episode, which is A Looking Glass World by Feng Jitai, is the book as a publication, since uh, you work for the, well, yeah, you are a big part of this publisher, and this is a book that Sinoist Books, the fiction imprint of ACA, published. So first question about this, what, why is it particularly significant that it's us two? So not just you, but me and you talking about this book, why, why is that worth mentioning? I think it's um, because both of us have quite intimate knowledge from <laughs> for, of this book, ranging from typesetting to editing to cover design to arguing over beers about blurbs and how to position them. 
car. Yeah, we, listeners we, can't see all the gray hair in my beard that <laughs> triggered the um, entry into the world of. Oh, I must say, I I do uh, now looking back on it, uh, I do apologize for giving you what was must have been hell. <laughs> well, I think it it maybe wasn't the most efficient. Well, you could say this for probably a lot of books blurbs. It maybe wasn't the most efficient uh, drafting process, but it did produce a really good blurb. And I couldn't mm. have if I had if it, if we just gone for my first or second draft, it wouldn't have been a good blurb. So that's just is- that's just how it goes. Angus is being very kind. What you're looking at on the book is probably ninth draft 10th draft or something yeah. like that i don't think that's not an exaggeration yeah we, we yeah. have the paperwork to prove it it's i can dig out the file somewhere yeah for the lawsuit <laughs> when it comes <laughs> yeah so we we worked on the i think broadly very using the word production very broadly uh i was spent i spent something like about a year and a half doing a bit of jack of all trades work helping daniel with aca and cnos books and this is one of well they were all interesting books but this is definitely one of the really interesting ones that um, we produce in that time um fungi tai might be giving some of our listeners deja vu so daniel why might that be well he is the author of uh faces in the crowd and among other things, a lot of he's been in the translation game. If you don't know him from Faces in the Crowd, he's been in the kind of CD translation game since late eighties, I think. He rose to fame uh, on a book called The Three Inch Golden Lotus, published by um, Hawaii Universe. Yeah, University of Hawaii Press, and that's the book that, as far as I can tell, seems to have given western readers the concept of foot binding so um the it's a if i remember correctly the plot is it's about it's about a a a, a person from a well-to-do family basically marrying into uh having his foot having her foot bound uh at a very young early uh at a very young age and then her her journey through life basically and um if you don't know what foot binding is, I do not recommend Googling it. Um, but uh, it is basically, the process is, is uh, uh, when you're young, you're, when your kind of bones are still malleable, they kind of constrain your foot into a very tight shoe-like device. And then basically your, your foot essentially becomes the form as you grow up into it. And it's, it's done in order to conform to whatever it is, whatever the beauty standards of the time are. And um, Feng Ji Tai is a very, very impressive author. And, um, but that's not, that I think anyone who's ever interacted with at least Faces of the Crowd and Looking Glass World will come to realize that's not the only thing that he does. I think Xin Ran describes his work primor- prim- primarily around what, what she calls four horses. And for the uh, listeners here, I just, uh, had quotate i just uh, rose up my uh, hands in quotation marks uh, the bunny ears yeah and um basically he, uh, literature is a large part of it he also is a traditionally trained artist and inside china he's also very well known for his uh preservation of traditional folk cultures so one of the projects which i've personally seen is um is an oral history project where he essentially goes into these old villages and tries to find crafts and 
techniques and various art artistic ways of making say things like baskets or traditional crafts and then things that are passed down generation to generation and not formally documented anywhere and that project was basically to record the oral history before it dies in china effectively and um and then he also runs as part of the university of tianjin the feng jitsai institute of literature and art and it's um somewhere where uh, i've been personally it is a beautiful beautiful building and inside oh. it is this incredible collection of um things that he's preserved and one particularly notable element is basically he always finds these remnants of smash pottery and things like that that you get around china as china's modernized so fast like these beautiful old word word wall decorations or mosaics or bowls or whatever that's just basically been discarded he literally picked them out of construction sites and things like that and inside his institute there's a massive wall basically of just these items and these small pieces that he's managed to preserve kind of as a, as a whole wall monument i have an image of it somewhere mm. and yeah so feng zitai amazing guy uh i'm not sure if that helped that did help um so just for any listeners who still have some weird uncanny feeling of deja vu that they aren't able to sort of banish if you recognize daniel's voice it's because his voice was actually in the episode we did way back on faces in the crowd so we've done i think a grand total of two scenoist books books on this podcast and there's definitely been a bias because they both this being number two they've both been fungi tai and that last one was faces in the crowd it's probably a good point to sort of go through what which books of Feng Laoshu's exist in English translation because you've just we've, well, we've we've name dropped all of them already. There's the Three Inch Golden Lotus, which my quick check on Amazon tells me came out in '94, and then although you can get a few of his short stories translated in English here and there, I think um, in like full book format we had nothing in English until uh, Faces in the Crowd from Sinus books and now we got number three but there I don't know there it doesn't seem too hard to link all of them um, because they're all I think more or less set in a similar window of time the sort of turn of the yeah the dawn of the 20th century or the late 19th uh, century and I don't know about Three Inch Golden Lotus but uh, Looking Glass World and Faces in the Crowd are both very much books of Tianjin. He's he's Mr. Tianjin, really. I don't know if there's mm. a bigger writer who sort of... Even if there are bigger writers from Tianjin, I don't know if there are writers, maybe they are, who've identified as much with the city in their work as him. Mm. Like That seems to be a big part of what he's about. And it's quite interesting, because I had never... All my years in China, I never visited Tianjin. And whilst reading Faces in the Crowd in this book, I ended up regretting it, because it's a very interesting place. Although we probably went over that in Faces in the Crowd. But still, I wanted to ask Daniel, um, had you visited the Fungi Tai Institute before you started on Looking Glass World? Or has, has that been since since then? So that's actually a really interesting story. Um, uh, I think it was the... When was the last year we could have gone to China? 2019? 2019? Yeah, probably 2018. Yeah, it was around kind of August of 2019. I was in Beijing for... Um, for Beijing Book Fair, and uh, the we had just published, I believe, Faces in the Crowd in the previous May, I think, if I remember correctly. 
uh, someone's going to check that now and be like, no, it was, it was actually April. Sorry, uh, it's uh, I think I believe it was May. And uh, we, in, if you've ever read the book, and especially the physical edition, there is these uh, accompanying the thirty-six stories. There are these kind of thirty. I want to say eight. A couple of them had a double illustration. Thirty-nine little charming little illustrations that uh, Feng Laoshi himself did, and it, it's all these kind of. It's like that you can see the steam rising out of the buns, or you can tell like a man standing on top of his own coffin and looking quite proud and things like that. And it's 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 got this beautiful. It's it's very it's wonderful basically. They're they're all very simple illustrations, but they get so much information across. And at the time. They had just done another project in China, China domestically, basically uh, preserving Nijin. Um, it's basically these little clay figurines that uh, it's a traditional craft as part of the oral. I, I believe it was part of the oral history project. Don't quote me on that, but that I mentioned earlier. But it's uh, but basically these like tiny little figurines that is molded and and uh, they're made in a traditional way and. Feng Laoshi had just, I believe, either been gifted them or, as part of the project, they they created them. But basically, it's these beautiful little illustrations of the characters from the the characters from the Faces of the Crowd book. One of them is, uh, for example, Strawman Jiang has this like big weight above his head and things like that. And I had just seen uh, that that just it came out around the period of Beijing Book Fair, if I remember correctly. And I forget who it is that I mentioned to it. I was like, oh, I would love to see these things in the flesh. I forgot who it was. But somehow that ended up going, that message from Beijing Book Fair ended up all the way in Tianjin in like two days. <laughs> and then I was just about to, as I was, as I was like packing up to go back to London, um, I suddenly received this message. It'd be like, would you like to come to Tianjin to see them? I'm like, wow, yes, please. <laughs> and so, you know, I boarded a high-speed train from Beijing Dong, I believe. Beijing Nan or Beijing Dong, the, the the railway station, and um, and within half an hour I was in Tianjin. First time, it was my first time in the city. I was like walking around, looking absolutely lost. I must have looked like such a tourist. And I walked to. I've never I've never seen the the institute before, so I had a hell of a time trying to find it on the University of Tianjin grounds. But I ended up mm. at this like beautifully ivy clad building, and I was like, oh okay, this is a nice building. Go up to the door, and. It says on it, Fengjie Tsai Institute of Literature and Art. I was like, oh, yes, I'm in the right place. Sweet. Go in. Um, a lady there called Yang Yang helped me. And she was like, yeah, thank you for coming. Like, uh, we'll, we'd love to show you. And I ended up, we ended up trying to do this kind of like 3D scan of these little figurines as part of the, um, as part of the, uh, the, the marketing process for Faces of the Crowd. And uh, I, I believe we've used it in various assets, various places. You can probably see a version of it somewhere. But um, but uh, it was it, you see, they brought them out. It's, and, and as part of it, they gave us this this tour throughout the building. And people there, every single person there is a subject matter expert. I mean, Feng Zitai does not surround himself with Feng Zitai basically surrounds himself with incredibly talented people. And basically, you could go like you go down to a section of the museum, and that section of the museum is led by a subject matter expert. So basically, you can go from things like all things like, I believe, carvings in Chinese history, how they were inspired by various things like Buddhism, and even as far away as say, the Romanesque Hellenistic styles and things like that. 
and then all the way till um, like modern Chinese sculpture, and then upstairs there will be like paintings. It it is a it is a incredible. All I can say is is that if you ever do get the chance to visit this institute, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And but unfortunately, I think it's invite only. So um, oh. th those of you with Guanxi inside uh, uh, China, get your Guanxi game on. I basically uh, is all I'm saying. Whilst you were talking, I tried searching on Google Maps for Fengji Tai Institute, and it just auto-directed me to the office of the Lead Center for New Chinese Writing. And Did it? Yes. Very strange. And now wait, I'm wait. on... Sc screen share me? Seriously? Uh, yeah. Let me show you. <laughs> Google, hello? Yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, I do know that on the Trichific map, I'm pretty sure, which is a custom Google map, um... I'm pretty sure I do have Funk, the Fung Tai Institute marked. I remember finding it when we were working on the book. Mm. Let me just double check that right now. Give myself more editing work. Yeah, I do have it marked. Yep. I know now I have to zoom in and find it. There it is. Yep. So I will put a link in the show notes um, for listeners who want to see where this thing is on Google's map. Um, should you ever be in. Tianjin, I guess maybe you can't be, you won't be able to go inside, but you can at least admire the building because I've seen photos of it from the outside, and even from the outside, it's it's something. I'll uh, I'll if you don't mind, I'll send over a photo to a to an interior stuff that I'm sure they don't mind sharing. Yeah, wonderful. and you can post that as part of the podcast. Okay, so I think we've introduced the book as a publication, more or less. We can talk about the actual production work a little further down in our conversation, but probably listeners who don't know the story are, are itching to hear what the book's actually about, what happens in it. So what's the ele you're the you're one of the publishers here, so what's the elevator pitch? Oh gosh, uh, I'm just thinking of all the uh, booksellers I've talked to about this book, and I'm thinking I'm just trying to think which one is the most effective. Because you talk to a bookseller and sometimes their face lights up and sometimes their face just is like a thousand miles there and you don't know what they're thinking, right? So yeah. um, it very much is a doomed romance story. I think one of the most successful elevators I pitched is um, uh, Romeo and Juliet set in uh, turn of the century, turn of the 20th century Tianjin with uh, the Chinese as the Capulets and the... Uh, the Europeans as the Montagues, and right. yeah. and uh, boxer boxer rebellions on top uh, with the boxer rebellion on top of that basically, um, it, the boxer rebellion happened around the turn of the century in China, and in in Chinese history it, it, that year is especially important because it happened on something called a Gunzunian, which is essentially. Uh, in on the uh, on the Chinese, I think lunar calendar, uh, where um, essentially they go in sixty year ro rotations, and Gongzunian uh, normally is uh, a time. It's it's especially in the recent history, is basically regarded as uh, a time of great disaster. So, uh, nineteen hundred was Gongzunian. It was the uh, it was the European uh, Europeans basically invaded China in order to put down the Boxer Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion itself. And the history around that period is also particularly tumultuous, right? And then we get into the 1960s, and I don't think 
I'm sure our readers know. And then what's particularly interesting is is another Guns and Yen was actually 2020. And I'm not sure uh, if uh, uh, our listeners have heard of this, but we had a tiny little pandemic in China that, that I'm sure no one's heard about, right? And yeah, that's foreign countries. I don't pay attention e- to those. Exactly, exactly. And um, and uh, so yeah, and it's about the son of a merchant fortune and a French officer's daughter, and their ultimately doomed romance as they uh, experienced the Boxer Rebellion, the brewing first, the brewing of the Boxer Rebellion, and then the full blown happening of the Boxer Rebellion. And let's just say, without offering spoilers, um, the comparison to uh, Romeo and Juliet is apt, and it uh, it they do both end up as dying, I believe, off screen, right? To, to That's, a spoiler. That's a yeah. spoiler. That's a spoiler. The Boxer Rebellion was a bad time, guys. <laughs> Who really won? No one. Yeah. Mm, exactly. And yeah, so. Um, the original Chinese title is called Dantong Wang Yanjing, or otherwise known as the Monocular Telescope. I think that's called yeah. the Mononus. I think there's um, a term for it. Yes, I remember we were trying to think about this. Um, like it's like this. Is it not the spyglass a sea captain? Yeah, through? exactly. One of, one exactly. Of those. The 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 spyglass is relevant because uh, Senya, the French officer's daughter, gives Ho Yangjue. The spyglass, and throughout the whole of the plot, I remember talking to Feng Jitai's assistant, and oh, linking back to the uh, the, the the visit to Feng Jitai's institute, I actually we actually went to the Feng Jitai institute, and the, at the very end, uh, um, Yang Yang, who was like my guide, is Feng Jitai's personal assistant, and she she um, she she kind of like was like, oh, Daniel, could you just come into this room real quick? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And I was like, doop 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 doop. And I go into the room, and it's this beautiful office. And sitting at the end, it was Feng Jitai, right? And oh, then I find oh, oh, oh. I fanboyed out so hard, <laughs> and um, and yeah, he ended up like sitting me down. He was he was an incredibly nice guy, and he ended up sitting me down. Was like, uh, like we, we we had a very quick conversation, and he he actually ended up giving me the elevator pitch for uh, a Looking Glass World, and right. he was like, the relevance of the spyglass basically is is that. We are only ever looking at a single eye version of anything, mm-hmm. uh, and we're never getting the full story. And the nature of the spyglass is you can you can focus on something incredibly closely, but you lose all context of what you're looking at, basically. Right. And and yeah, like that very much is a, a major theme of the story. It's both both sides examining each other from afar, not quite understanding each other, and the tragedy that ends up ensuing very much. Yeah. And I think in the English edition that Xenoist produced that we both worked on and in the translation of it as well, um, that theme is reflected quite nicely and quite subtly for the most part. So um, the translator, who we not mentioned yet actually, Olivia Milburn, she uh, translated its title to A Looking Glass World. So kind of, you know, Stick kind of a literal translation, but kind of teasing out the theme in a way where it's gonna make a bit more sense. I I tried to reflect that a bit, or we tried to reflect that a bit, putting the blurb together. Uh, lots of sort of mirror through the looking glass, 
reflections sort of language. I think you should. Uh, I think you should read it out. All right. I think that's some of your best work. Okay. Let me. Uh, yeah, I think um, there there are a few blurbs I'm pretty damn proud of that are on Cinemas Books. Okay, here we go. I could do this. The Hollywood please sort please of please turn it. No. In a <laughs> in a world upside down. Uh, Nineteen hundred. For Tianjin's European colonists, a profitable new century is dawning. But for the city's downtrodden Chinese natives, the end of the zodiac cycle signals imminent catastrophe. Meanwhile, the fearsome boxer warriors, said by some to be bulletproof, are spilling in from the provinces. On restless streets, a dangerous liaison begins. Ouyang Jue, a gentle layabout and heir to a merchant fortune, finds himself entangled with Xinya a French officer's daughter indulging every impulse on her first visit to China. Each sees liberation in the other, semicolon, a chance to leap through the mirror and escape the mundane. Separated by the widening divide between their two worlds, the lovers were never meant to be. But as discontent sparks into all-out conflagration, will they find paradise behind the glass? Or will they join the ashes of what might have been? And I'm going to editorialize and say, you can't get behind the glass. That's the problem with mirrors. There's nothing. That's the problem with paradise. A, just a surface. Yeah, that's the problem with paradise. And I was going to mention as well another thing that we've, we've got a note, an edition that would have been in the Chinese edition from the author, from Feng, uh, where he kind of spells out his uh, analysis, but in a very sort of poetic form. He wrote, um, Just as a woman does not seem the same in the eyes of a man as she does in those of a woman, neither does a man appear in the eyes of a woman as he does in those of another man. Likewise, Westerners do not appear in the eyes of Chinese people as they do in their own, and Chinese people in the eyes of Westerners are nothing like how they seem to themselves. Today, when someone writes a historical novel having created their characters, they dress them up in historical garb, but they are shown from a contemporary perspective and brought to life by the author's imagination. So I guess he's just trying to say there is really no escape from your subjectivity. And in a hetero relationship, like in this book, you've, that's a really fundamental problem because as a man, you're never really going to know what, what it's like being your, your partner or, and vice versa. And then on top of that, we have the, the intercultural um, colonial thing going on between the two, the, mm. the two characters. And then on top of that, there's the meta problem that Fung hangs a lampshade on that he wasn't alive in 1900 and... We're going to be bringing modern sentiments and angles into the book as readers and as writers because that can't be helped. The other thing I was going to say is the Gungsa year. I definitely grew a few more gray hairs trying to figure out what was the best way to reflect this in the blurb in a way that would make sense to to readers. So that's what we, we meant in the blurb by the end of the Zodiac cycle. But we also have a note from Olivia Milburn that I think the editor over at Sinoist helped us sort of tweak so that it would... Um, be nice and clear for readers. Um, so yeah, I, nothing, nothing much Thanks, to flag there. You've already mm-hmm. given readers who hadn't heard of it before the, the the mathematical pointer that every sixty years shit hits the fan in China. And that, Are we allowed to swear on the show? I didn't know this. I swear sometimes. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last thing that we did in the production to reflect the the theme is for the hook line. We we did little mirror images. Um, mm. I, I really like nice, that. A nice little flourish. 
So, I really yeah. like that. I think, I think, I think one of the things is, I think you'll, you, you, I think I, I, I definitely, uh, I, I would definitely find it annoying. Whereas, uh, notes and feedback and things like that. And I think every single, uh, you, you came up with most of the, the, the design for this, right? If I remember correctly. And, um, I remember there was quite a lot of back and forth notes and I, I do now reflecting back on it, feel bad for most of them, but that one, I do remember that one idea from hook line to conception to visual design. There wasn't a single note. I think you did a fantastic job on that. Mm, yeah. Yep. Lot, the, the tweaking there was nudge it left, nudge it right, rather than <laughs> change, change the idea. The exactly. last thing I'll say, I guess we can talk more about production later, but I'll just flag this one now, is that um, we do have, we have images in the book and we can talk more about the images later. But I just want to say right now, some of the images we captioned, which you might... Um, you might associate more with a non-fiction book, but it kind of works here because Fung himself is a guy who's about sort of documenting and capturing and uh, excavating the history of Tianjin. So there's, even if you don't find this book captivating as a work of fiction, as a piece of somewhat realistic history, it's really interesting too. And it's, you know, for probably a lot of readers, they wouldn't have heard of Tianjin before. They'll have heard of Beijing. But yeah, I think that, again, another thing we did to tease that out in the, in the this edition worked, I think. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, but we can talk more about that later. Um, next thing I wanted to go on to was the historical events. Basically, that's just the Boxer Rebellion. But we might be worth, it might be worth going over... Um, something we may have gone over in Faces in the Crowd, the episode the episode on Faces in the Crowd, is that Tianjin had something a bit in common with Shanghai in that it wasn't just one or two foreign powers that were there. It was really divided up. It had something like seven or eight different little foreign concessions. Hmm. I, I remember one of the ideas for the marketing for this book, I remember us two talking about it, was um, how how to give scale to uh, to uh, the the farm concessions inside Tianjin, right? And I think we were talking about, I forget what it was. I think it was either the British concession or the French concession was the size of Hyde Park. And and you had eight nations, eight or nine, eight, correct me if I'm wrong, eight nations uh, inside Tianjin at the time? It was certainly the, it was the eight nation army, wasn't it, that mm. fought the boxers. Whether or not they ought a concession, I'm not sure. But they 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 were huge places. I mean, imagine eight pieces of Hyde Park. That's pretty much most of London you're talking about, and um, and yeah, it was uh, they, they these inside these concessions. Uh, it's uh, extra. I'm gonna pronounce. I'm gonna push the pronunciation of this word. Extraterritoriality. Extra Extraterritoriality. Extraterritoriality, where essentially foreign law applied on Chinese soil, effectively, and um, obviously that is throughout anywhere where that's ever happened, it's always caused humongous tension. This is this yeah. is the age of you know no dogs and Chinese people allowed in this park, right? And uh, it, it's it's something that like gets brought up again and again, and I think it's it's something that like. Generally, at least in my education growing up here in the UK, I never got, definitely. I never got that, you know, uh, this is something that like maybe is, is a part of this kind of theming of looking at each other through lenses. 
and I got two years of education inside China. So my Xiao Yi and Xiao R basically, and then I moved here when I was eight, and then I I spent most of my rest of my education system inside China,、uh, inside inside、uh, inside the UK,、uh, pretty much going through your you know SATs A levels, GCSEs, etc., etc. Right. In the Chinese side, this is drilled into you young. This is drilled into as something that is shameful and can never ever happen again, as long as you have power to prevent it. And then on the opposite side of the world, as far as I know, unless I missed something in those first two years, which I doubt, you it never get, even gets brought up, basically,、well, ever. Not that this is an excuse, but. In the, at least as far as the British Empire goes, China is just one of many countries that were subject to this sort of bullshit. Although、mm. it's it's a special case, I suppose, because it's it's not like India where one Western power was sort of ruling over it. It was I don't know. I don't. I'm not an expert on the 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 bads and the worses of colonialism, but to my mind, being sort of allowed to somewhat run as your own country, but Be stepped on and carved up by eight different countries, and and for all eight of those countries, so be assumed that they're on a civilizing mission. Yeah, not not great for the national self-esteem. Exactly, exactly. And if I think that plays, I think that even even looking at that, it plays into a little bit of the theming of this book, right? Like maybe we're looking at each other wrong. Maybe 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 there is. Maybe there is middle ground to be found somewhere that both sides can agree on, where one side at least admits culpability, which I think the British has trouble doing right now, as far as I know, and I'm going to get in trouble with all the British booksellers I ever talked to past this point. And on the other side, maybe maybe assuming hostility from the other side is not the most productive method. I mean, it's 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 there is a middle ground to be struck, right? I'll rattle off what I learned about China in my education system before I answer this one.、Um, I learned pretty much nothing <laughs> about the history.、Um, stuff about Chinese, yeah, Chinese history or like cultural differences, basically was filtered to me through, not in the curriculum, but from somewhat racist ramblings from a teacher and an assistant teacher that I had in primary school.、Um, although. Yeah, I don't know why this guy was, I suppose, ahead of his times. He was、um, just another white Scottish guy like me, but was telling us, "Look, in、uh, when you guys all grow up, China's gonna wake up and rule the world. So get ready." But he wasn't saying that like it was a great thing.、Uh, so there was that, and I think once in the sort of RE slot, learning about other religions or other cultures, we did Chinese New Year for like a day or a week, and and that was it really. Oof. That was the full extent of my education. I mean, we did learn about some other world cultures, and we did learn. I didn't escape school not knowing what the British Empire was, and I didn't come away thinking it was God's gift to the earth. But certainly, circa ninety three to two thousand and ten, the Scottish education system wasn't bent on educating you on all the dodgy shit the British Empire did, and I, I'm sure in England probably even less so. Although maybe that's different. Some slightly different. No, we did learn about the slave trade, but、um, mm. that doesn't that doesn't really teach think, you much about China. For from、uh, from a southern England point of view, I guess Croydon Council had a lot to do with it. But、um, 
but uh, the slave trade. I remember the slave trade education lesson actually, and it was primarily who was the pottery maker? Uh, Edgewood. Edgewood. He he made he made that thing. Is like, am I not a man and a brother or something like that on a plate? I don't know. Uh, and and they mostly concentrated on British efforts to you know stamp out the slave trade. And mm-hmm. and a, a paragraph, I believe, if I remember correctly, mentioning that uh, British merchants were involved in the slave trade. So it's mm. uh, I'm not saying I'm not saying uh, that's definitely um, uh, that's not definitely probably not representative. I mean, it's just one person's view, right? And but it's um, mm. I've just it's... remembered the other place where China crept into my school education. Mm-hmm. I did higher SQA, higher history, so something roughly equivalent to A-level in England. Mm-hmm. And we did the run-up to World War II in a few different modules. So um, there was Germany, the rise of the Nazis, well, the end of the Weimar Republic, the rise of the Nazis in Germany, but also the policy of appeasement in the UK. And I forget where exactly this landed, but there was a paragraph or two about um, how technically... Maybe World War Two started earlier over in uh, in China, the China versus Japan war. And what I mainly remember about that is not being clear where China was on the left-right political spectrum, which was very important um, to to the run-up to World War Two. The other thing I remember is my teacher pronounced Manchukuo, Manchukuo, you know the uh-huh, Manchurian puppet. Mm-hmm. She pronounced it Manchukio. <laughs> There's no I in there, but she 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 added one. I, I to be fair, I've been doing I I, I to this day I can't pronounce dot dot there. Yeah, I'm, I'm embarrassing myself on a podcast, but dot the Russian the Russian Dostoevsky. There it is. I, I I my mouth physically doesn't allow me to move it that way. I don't know why. Yeah, it does get weird that name in about the middle with all those mm. vowels. I Shall we move back right into the book? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. There, well, there's, there's the, there's the in. I mentioned J- Japan. Uh, that was one. They're one of the, um, the players in the, in the Boxer Rebellion. They're alongside all these Western powers, along with Russia, fighting the Boxers. Um, Fun fact. Do we want to say anything else about the Boxers and their presence in the book? I mean, they do play a major presence throughout the book, and they, they are. I think, I think. Feng Jitai uses them. It's my personal reading of it, but I think Feng Jitai uses them as the the. It's it's the tragedy that came out of the hubris of both sides. Basically, that's that's my reading of it, and um, and, yeah, that's about it. I remembered what I was going to say about mm. re- replying to you about tragedy, uh, and ideas about who's civilized, who's not civilized. Now, I think it's quite interesting that Feng picked the Ouyang family, a merchant family. He he didn't pick like some peasants or some poor urban people. Uh, he didn't pick Manchu aristocrats or mm-hmm. even rich Han Chinese, well, you know, aristocratic, bureau- bureaucratic government affiliated Han Chinese. He picked merchants, like the classic sort of middle class, proto middle class, bourgeois profession. And they come across as quite smart or sensitive people. Jue, uh, he's the sort of romant- useless romantic of the family. Mm-hmm. I can relate. <laughs> Probably <laughs> everyone in my generation in the family can relate, with a few exceptions. Um, but yeah, he's he's got a brother who's kind of um, practical and businesslike, and Jue is out there sort of just having fun, wandering through life. So it's maybe... 
it's not particularly shocking he's the one that ends up in a romantic but not very sensible or practical romance but the reason i'm bringing this up is they're quite a good match for Xenia and her family who are a military family but seem to be also sort of middle class they don't see or, or maybe upper middle class but they, they don't seem to be i don't know part of the french aristocracy or anything there's she, she's a similar sort of um, bourgeois mm. figure to Joe. and the other thing about them that's interesting is he doesn't really learn much French from what I remember. She doesn't learn a great deal of Chinese from him. And they don't really go out of the way. Or it's not described in the book that they... Wasn't one of the characters a, a translator like in between the romance? I remember yeah. That. Uh. And they don't have much of an intercultural romance. Like He's not rushing to learn everything about France. And she's not really immersing herself in Chinese culture. That's It's just a, well, a pure attraction or romance. Hmm. And it's a short book, I suppose. Um, maybe, maybe that's why Fung didn't go there. But it's just interesting that 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 bridge is never built, and maybe that's where am I going with this? I don't know. But maybe that's part of the tragedy that they never got time to to get to that, or that it just wasn't even possible to 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 do that, unless I don't know you were in the very right place at the very right time. But no one really. You're right. No one really seems to understand each other. I mean, as far as I know, the 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 I don't think this is a I don't think this is a his, like a factual historical. I don't think this romance actually happened. No, I think the instigating thing was someone. I remember the one of the events that inspired the book was the uh, a, a murder of a white woman inside Beijing, I believe, and I I think Paul French's book Midnight Midnight, Midnight in Peking Midnight in Peking yeah touches on that, I believe. Right. And Feng took elements of that story and then kind of applied it to his Tianjin setting, I believe. I mean, uh, spoilers again, the woman does end up dying. Uh, so it's, um, it, it's I, I, you can see where he's coming from. And I think, I think that the romance is, is constructed in such a way to tell a wider story of uh, perhaps of the time uh, but I get the feeling that it's also a reflection of what's going back on an earlier theme of what he wrote about it's also a reflection of the, his uncertainties about the current time I mean the, the global system I, I, I've always said to the friends the global system we are children of globalization right and the global system that nurtured and brought us up and gave us our ideals are at in front of our eyes right now fraying and Maybe we didn't notice it, what is it, five years ago when this book came out? I believe this is a 2018, 2017 book, originally in Chinese. And maybe maybe Feng was just in a better position and in a better vantage point to see what maybe was happening at a higher level. Uh, but maybe it's also Feng's, like this is again a personal reading, uh, maybe a Feng's a way of saying, can we escape this kind of trap we've set up for ourselves? Maybe... The fraying of this world can be held together. I mean, the, the the two characters certainly tried, and maybe that as as this as greater forces ripped the basically the, the the foundations of what their what their world is built on apart. Maybe this is all we have left, and is that sacrifice worth it to people? Mm. Maybe again, personal reading, but it it brings me a little bit of comfort to read that. I think. 
Mm. Yeah, I just checked um, the copyright page. Yeah, the, the Chinese mm. original editions, 2018. So we were already a, th- a few years into departure from Universe A into Universe B. Indeed. They shouldn't have switched on CERN. <laughs> yeah. That was actually the, the day when they turned on the big, was it the Big Hadron Collider? And there was mm-hmm. speculation that it might open a black hole. Oh, sorry, not CERN. CERN's the the fusion thing, right? The, the, yeah. What's the, yeah, sorry, my bad. The, oh. the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, large Hadron. I was in high school when they did that, and the feeling I got kind of waiting for a hole to open up, I never felt again in school or in university, I think. But, um, yeah, when, um, maybe not Brexit, but certainly as all those sort of end of, um, end of your illusions about a globalized world events started... Mm. compounding upon one another the feeling came back again and again that the you know the the floor under you or the carpet under you can be pulled and you might even be ignoring the signs of it coming which is what happens in the book like right from the start the boxers are arriving in the city um and there's some amazing historical photos in the book of that Mm. happening but they're essentially treated as a nuisance to begin with yep yep no one sort of thinks a few chess moves ahead as to what's sort of logical outcome of hundreds hundreds of soldiers essentially marching into a city with fanatics uh, un, un, under under a spiritual belief no less and it's yeah 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 they believe they're it's not it's not a joke in the blurb when it says that there's word going about that they're bulletproof mm, it's it's a clever novel he's, he's a clever clever man he's a clever clever man that's all i can say yeah uh, it's funny actually that we're doing this episode because the last one was uh, the adventures of Masu Jin, which is also about um, fighters from Shandong, which is where the boxers I think are arriving from. No, no deep point to to make there. Just sort of amusing. Accidentally yeah. done a bit of a Shandong uh, mini mini Shandong season. Uh, my next question was going to be: Do you see any metaphors or messages at work in the story? But I think we've we already covered that. Yeah, we've done that. Yeah, I don't have any more especially clever takes, um, so I'll just take us to the next one, which was I, I think maybe, to yeah. um, sorry, I just thought I'd jump in. I think to mm-hmm. add a bit of extra context into um, listeners listening, um, uh, me and Angus went on quite opposite paths uh, in terms of our education educational journeys. You spent what three years in Shanghai. Uh, one, one, just under one year in Zhejiang, went back to Scotland for seven months and then went to Shanghai for two and a half years. Mm. And then after university, I was uh, t- that typical kind of lost teenager, right? And um, I ended up going to Europe on Erasmus and it was particularly interesting to end up in Prague, claim your uh, British, speak with an American accent and have a face like mine. It's confused quite a lot of Czechs, basically. And then uh, and then I spent six months in Prague. I spent six months in... Uh, I spent six months in Colorado uh, with another job. And then... But well, I mean, it's no joke when we say both of us are children of globalization. It's... That experience is so alien to someone from this time period. And especially for someone who is, like, not particularly... I mean, you, if you were rich in this time period, you could probably replicate that, but not for like a typical middle-class family, right? And um, and yeah, and I don't know. It's it, they they recently sent me an email uh, on 
on through the Erasmus program saying basically that they were withdrawing from the UK, which is no surprise. But yeah, it's a uh, sad. Sorry, I just thought I mentioned that. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to think that although there was a kind of a multi-racial international society in the in these colonial Chinese cities, it's um, it's another planet from like I don't know, growing up in school in Scotland and sharing your classes with kids from like a libyan or mm. chinese or pakistani background is mm. it's um it's almost opposite actually mm, it's exactly. integration integration not segregation and then yeah being able to hop around the world by plane and not by boat for for months on end it's we, we, it's we another are very privilege we are yes. very privileged yep yep privileged to have never caught covid myself did you not don't think so or if no. i did I don't know. Yeah, me, me neither. But like everyone, everyone around me, everyone in the office is getting it right now. It's it's actually kind of scary. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe I did and I wasn't aware of it. Mm. I did get a a bit of a, a sniffles just before the um, it was announced to have arrived. You know, it may have mm. a bit like the boxers. It may have trickled in at first without anyone noticing. <laughs> trickled in from the provinces. Yeah. Um, last thing I'll say is later we're gonna. Um, name our sort of musical pairings that we thought we'd that we'd want to accompany the the book and i had like a runner-up i'll name now it was um one of like the early tracks from the dark knight rises have you ever seen that one of course so do you remember early i mean maybe this is a mean thing to say about the poor boxer rebels but do you remember early in the film there's sort of murmurings that a lot of unemployed uh workers are sort of gathering in the sewers and it's like oh that's weird. And no one does anything. And then the city gets completely <laughs> turned into a war zone. And and then, then and they're, they're so shocked that there is like trials when they're uh, being dragged out into the river. And the, that that scene is like, I sentence you to death by exile. Yes, this, the naughty or naughty. Uh, what's he called? I am remembering the wrong movie. No, I'm remembering the third one. That's the third one. The Dark Knight Rises. That's Killian Murphy. That's the scarecrow. Ah, oh, yeah. Before he became a Peaky Blinder. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that there's some sort of like ominous, um, quiet, deep music that plays um, during those sections of the film, and that would be a decent soundtrack for the start of the book. But then uh, the romance and the the drama escalates, so I didn't pick that one. When when when, uh, when uh, Christopher Nolan uh, eventually shoots the movie to this uh, book, uh, I'll, I'll make sure I'll make sure to mention that to him. I was gonna say that would make no sense for him, but. You could probably make a Dunkirk-style war film. Some of the later sections, some of the... he doesn't do romance very well, does no. he? No, no, that's not. <laughs> that's really not his thing. <laughs> anyway, shall we? Shall we? Shall we? Move Let's on? stop being silly. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So the last question about the story was how we can compare the book alongside either Faces in the Crowd, Fung's other creative or other work in general or even mm-hmm. other Chinese writers from his generation or others other generations um, I see you've got some notes here so what would you say about this I mean he rose to prominence uh, inside China uh, under the scar literature movement pretty much and he well he was one of the sent down youth right and it's actually interesting we do have a, a book two books actually coming out uh, one this year and one next year also by him 
One is uh, an oral history of Han Meilin and how he, uh, basically how Han Meilin, the artist who designed the, um, artist who designed the Olympic the, mascots. Uh, yes, indeed. And um, uh, how he suffered during the Cultural Revolution. And then the next one is another fiction book. It is essentially it's a semi-biographical uh, a fiction book about three artists' lives through the Cultural Revolutions. He's very much inside China. He's very much known for that. But what's his that side of his work, as far as we can tell, never really made it into translation. It's very much about his historical work on Tianjin, on Chinese history, on Chinese folk arts and law and urban 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 stories of random bun sellers in Tianjin, right? That's what's made it outside of China. And maybe it actually, this is actually probably a good part on how, how, how book, uh, a good argument on how books get decided to get translated in China. Traditionally, let's, let's look at who decides on the translation processes and starts translation processes in, in, um, uh, that make it out into publication here in, the Anglosphere, let's say, um, it's very much. I mean, in in uh, in on the traditional UK publisher side, so the Chinese, the your big fives, your kind of Bloomsbury's, your etc. They would look at a property coming out of China and say, okay, uh, does this reflect on what people have heard about China before? So they they're not looking to build knowledge about. China and build knowledge or nuance about China, right? They're very much looking to say, okay, what's the commercial viability of this? Yeah, or they at least part they of at least need a hook. They need something. Yeah, something exactly. Sort of vocabulary. So again, like like I said, what did I learn about China at school? Foot binding, Chinese lanterns, Chinese New Year, dancing dragons, hmm. uh, Hong Kong. M mine was yeah. Mine was what like uh, cultural revolution, great leap forward. Uh, <laughs> Hundred flower campaign, and then as a western, a, a, a average western, be like, oh, those sound great. A leap forward, yeah, yeah. hundreds of flowers, yeah. cool. Exactly. More about those nice things, and so, so that's the knowledge base that we are kind of working upon. And for a traditional publisher, especially if they don't want to, if this is just like a one-off, and they're not intending to build up any sort of formalized infrastructure for continuing to this translation projects and things like that. They basically say, okay, this is existing. Let's just publish a book on top of that. And we'll, we'll, it'll be great for a season or two. And then we'll forget about it. Basically that's, that's how they would look at it. And it makes sense, right? Their uh, publishing is a financial business. You have to make money. And if they don't intend to rapidly change what they're publishing, that, that approach absolutely makes sense. And then on the other side, you have, um, the kind of panda books and the chinese publications and and then they they generally like to tell positive stories not negative stories so it's so you, you basically the, there's that again it, it's a it's a, another theme of that kind of middle ground that we're looking for about the two extremes in the middle ground like there is a there is an interesting and nuanced story to be told here the scar literature as a whole is very interesting, right? It is reflections of Chinese people of the shock of the Cultural Revolution. And at least in translation, it never drills down into that much nuance. And you never hear about how like a, a person who 
might have suffered greatly under the Cultural Revolution to this uh, way back when, does not blame the the government of China today. And that that from a from a UK education point of view, that doesn't make sense, right? That does not make, compute logically. Yeah, it's like not a, wow. What? Uh, they don't yeah, want uh, to burn their country to the ground. What? Exactly. And then on the other, so yeah, like the, the a part of the job of what we really want to do with Sinos books is to tell that nuance, to, to understand, to help people understand the kind of um, the the complexities and the human experience that goes into why people are making the decisions they're making today. And I think that is again, this book I think does that very very well. And that is why we were very, very lucky to get it. Yeah, amen. Having, I, it's occurred to me, I've definitely been back in the UK now about as long, well, I think longer than I was in Shanghai. And if you include that sort of slightly fallow six months between Zhejiang and Shanghai, I've been back almost as long as I was out there. And it's occurring to me now, it's awfully hard with the information that filters through to sort of take anything to do with mainland China on its own terms. There's always a filter skewing mm. things one way or the other. And I mean, it's not a particularly deep or novel idea, but literary translation is one way to do that. But even the forces determining which books make it into English can skew or, you know, it's well, it's like we said at the start with the, the one-eyed telescope. Everything, everything's through a filter, but at least you can have a wider range of filters available. That might help you to get a clearer picture, a composite image. A more com- we're never getting the complete picture unless we're on there on the ground, right? No. And even then, you're only getting the picture of your street. It's it's for history to make sense what the full picture is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okie dokie. Um, did we want to say anything else about um, the story, or should we go on to talking a bit about production? Let's get technical. Yes, let's get technical. Okay, so I thought we could... Since since you're here, you're like the guy to talk to about this, at least from the perspective of an indie publisher. I wonder if we could lift the curtain for listeners and talk them through how a book, because not every book's the same, how a book like this one goes from the idea in uh, the mind of Feng Jitai to a translated work on a bookshelf, or at least on an online store. I know there's a lot of steps there, but... How would you characterize it? I, I only know half of that really well. Well, maybe a fourth of that really well. I mean, Chinese publishing is Chinese publishing, right? I mean, it's... It's, uh, it's, it's... a labyrinth, possibly with one or two minotaurs. Yes, yeah. in, indeed. So, yeah, Chinese publishing is very, very complicated, to say the least. And if you are looking to get a good grasp of what that whole world looks like the publishing association brings out this very good booklet that gives you a good overview of the entire situation i think it was written by paul richardson in 2008 i want to say and i I mean it's the, the the scenes changed a lot since then right but even then it's it gives you a good overview of what the overall structure is so if you're looking for additional reading past this book i would recommend that um, it's published by the Publishing Association. I'm sure we can find a link to it and uh, tell your readers about it. But uh, let's just say it's uh, it was we generally the, what we, who we work with on the China side is Chinese publishers, simply because um, they're a guarantee of at least the quality of the right. So 
the right situation inside China is very, very complicated. China didn't officially join what the what the what the English world considers to be the rights regime, so the current uh, copyright regime that the current UK publishing scene works under. Uh, in very late, I think it was past the two thousands, I believe, and basically that whole world before that point had to be kind of retrofitted into this system, basically. And then even past that point, I mean, we're only what maybe two decades into it. The the current copyright regime in the in in the UK has centuries of history behind it. I mean, what Queen Anne, I want to say, first made law on it in the UK. Copyright in the UK. You're the publishing course guy here. Uh oh. Uh, <laughs> well, I think the, the the teaching on rights, publishing rights, in the course I did was mo- mostly consisted of. You know, there's lots of opportunities in publishing rights. It's a big window. There's much to be done. If you know something about that, you can apply for those jobs. And no teaching on... Well, actually, no, there was some teaching. It was more in the different types of rights that exist. Um, So language rights are one. um, Geographical rights are another. So you could have Mm. worldwide rights to a book, or you could only have rights in certain parts of the world. Say mm. France, or there's rights for different formats, ebooks, audiobooks. There's granular rights. So, like, well, mm. they're all granular rights. That means, like, different sections. But you could have rights to one chapter of a book for sale in anthologies. There's all serialization. these. Serialization. There's mm-hmm. time rights. You could have rights to a book for X number of years before it reverts to someone else or passes on mm-hmm. to someone else. <clears throat> but how it all works, I don't know. I don't think I would be able to land a job. <laughs> in publishing rights without lying a lot because let's just say let's just say all of everything you've just described wasn't you know holy writ sent down from the heavens right it was yeah made by men decades if not centuries of iteration and uh changes and adaptation and etc etc yeah queen anne's thoughts on ebook rights were very undeveloped i have to say i know right she 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 preferred moby whereas like we now work in EPUB, so it's like, eh. uh, yeah. Well, that was what the Catholic-Protestant debate was really about. That's EPUBs why all those people were killed. <laughs> so, who who would Jeff Bezos be? The the Pope in this analogy, I guess. Oh no, he's got to be one of the Protestants. You think so? Who's Maybe. The Pope, then? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> I'll pray. We're, we're, and then we're one of the weird sects underneath Christianity that's like, I don't know, believes that like Jesus had an ice cream cone on the third day or whatever. We're uh, the Manchurian Orthodox Church. Ah, exactly. Yeah. Um, our, our, our Jesus is Korean. Yeah. Isn't, <laughs> isn't everyone's in a way? <laughs> anyway, before we get in trouble with your... Uh... With everyone <laughs> on the Russian border. Um... Um, so yeah, I mean, let's just say China's Chinese rights situation has only had at most now two a bit decades of development and it's still very much getting into the groove of things. And so basically, let's just say the rights situation inside China is very, very complicated. And sometimes the authors and the rights agents themselves aren't very, very, um, clear who they gave rights to when they gave rights to when those rights applied to when etc etc so to work with a big publisher inside china is as at least a guarantee that you're dealing with a good quality rights source effectively and 
I mean, people's literature press, uh, is probably one of the best peoples in the business. I mean, they, they're effectively the, the Chinese equivalent of what a favor and favor here, or, uh, what's like a big literature imprint in, or publisher. Probably house. some of Penguin's imprints, like Penguin isn't just some big commercial publisher. They also do lovely production. Mm. They're, vintage, they're, maybe they're they're essentially the Chinese equivalent of vintage, effectively. Right. So these are the the canon of Chinese literature, and they're kind yeah. of they're guardians, effectively. So yeah, uh, Feng Jitai is an author with uh, with them, and we I believe from there we secured their the translation rights, so the world English translation rights from them. And then we approach Olivia uh, to translate, not not because um, of anything else. It's simply because Feng Jitai demanded it. And mm. uh, Feng Jitai really enjoyed working with uh, Olivia. Uh, when I say demand, that's maybe a little bit harsh. Great Jitai would greatly prefer to work with Olivia, basically, simply because it's she uh, she rendered, he thinks he, she rendered... Um, his translation quite accurately and lovingly. And in Faces he, in the Crowd, you mean? In Faces in the Crowd, yes. And he, mm. he would love to work with her again. So Olivia translated it. Um, I believe uh, Olivia was actually quite key to the production process as well because um, if you engage with the Chinese manuscript, original Chinese manuscripts, the images and things that ended up in the English side wasn't actually how they were in the original Chinese side. They were actually just simple insert art with captions. Yes. And it's it's and then there were multiple ones throughout maybe a chapter and um and they were uh they were in installed basically where the relevant content was. And uh I'm not sure if your readers are aware of how kind of printing works. Uh, that's doable in the UK. Uh, the, that kind of printing is doable in the China. Pretty much undoable inside the UK, basically. Simply because uh, UK printers are... They are... A, we, we are going to be a small run to begin with, right? A thousand copies is going to be a small run to begin with. And... Uh, they the Chinese edition can like say push through ten thousand runs, uh, ten thousand uh, print run at the beginning, and the, basically their flexibility when it comes to like what can go where is a lot greater than ours. So basically, it started off as problem solving, and we we I think the original conversation we've had editorially is just like, let's just take the images out, and mm. um, and they were, and, but we, when we fed that back to Olivia, she pretty much stood her ground. She says this book needs images. This book, like, definitely requires it to give them so much context and flavor that, like, it'll be, it would be a fundamentally different product if we were to lose them. Yeah, and I think I was, I'm pretty sure I was on team take them out because although some, in my view, some of them were great, some we had a bit more of a mixed bag. Some were just little photos that looked as if they were taken on a camera phone in a museum, and which, you know, could be all right in at least in in English. In Anglo pub publishing, that might be all right in like a non-fiction book, but in the fiction book, I figured yeah. this is bizarre. Um, so I'm, but I'm very glad Olivia made her point because I think what we did with the best photos and art provided to 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 us from the Chinese side, we mm. one might hubristically say we improved on on it. We did something pretty cool, and that was 
You're right. We I repackaged it. Repackaged. We repackaged it. it. We we show new context onto it. Yes. Um, and so we went away. I mean, I, I remember having this conversation. How do we get it on there in an elegant way? And I think you came up with the idea of chapter heads, right? We just did. I think we just did another chapter head book. Yeah. And that's how we dropped onto the idea. I forget what it was. It was distant sunflower fields. It was distant sunflower oh, fields. Yeah. We had those images mm-hmm. in the back. Those color images in the back. And we we just did that and we were like, oh, this works great. And we 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 got some really nice high quality color images in the back and it was like, yeah, let's Yeah, that was the conversation. Yeah, I remember that now. Like we we had a conversation about like is it applicable here? How can we apply it here? Is it doable? And then we went away and did like had a look and we noticed that like a lot of the images are quite representative of their chapters if presented in the right light, right? Yeah. And yep. I think the, the 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 key one is like that chapter was when he goes to visit the family. I think there was a photo of like a European family standing in the middle of like a Chinese courtyard house. Yeah. Am I imagining that? No, there's there's one there's there is one like that, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then it's like it gives the reader so much more texture and flavor and material to engage with, right? Mm-hmm. So I think I went away. We talked to Feng Zhuhai's people, uh, Yang Yang again, actually. She she was instrumental in that whole process, pretty much. And we were like, this is our intention to do this. Can we, uh, It is A, do you think this is a good idea? B, can you supply us some additional? I think the the copy that went onto it is actually different than the original Chinese caption copy, if I remember correctly, or slightly different, if I remember correctly. And then basically, we 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 said to Yang Yang, it's like, okay, can we can we get Feng Laoshi's permission to do this? And Feng Laoshi very glad. Uh, it, she, it took a few days. She asked Feng Laoshi, and, and we we I think we gave her a really badly photoshopped image of a gate, I remember, if I remember correctly. And she was like, and it was, I'm sure she touched it up on her end because she was quite supportive of this idea as well. Um, but yeah, she presented it to um, uh, Feng Jitai. Feng Jitai very graciously said yes. And we went away and came up with what? 18 color images and two parts images, if I remember correctly, right? Um, What's the chapter and number at the end? 18? 18, 16? Or 16, um, 19? Let me see. I've got it. 15? 15? Okay. No, 16. The last, 16. Ch- last few chapters are quite small. 16, yeah. yeah. Eight chapters per part, and we got those two parts images, right? Yes, that's right. And yeah, so um, she said yes, and we made it happen, and here we are. And I think definitely the book is better because of it. Yeah, I just looked up the one you said about the Western family. So I think it only half registered with me, but yeah, they're definitely on like a Chinese sort of style uh, door in a in a house, but mm. they've decked it out with like a Western style carpet, so it's this <laughs> kind of hybrid thing. But then another thing, I only I think I'd only half registered is chapter three. We've got a, a Qing Chinese family, and the background behind them is a sort of a Roman style neoclassical pillar, and it looks like they've sat down to sort of kind of Western kind of Chinese cup of tea round a little and, but but in traditional full traditional garb right yeah with their um uh, robes on yeah that i must say that i'm 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 
I'm curious why more movies haven't been shot under that aesthetic of that kind of hybrid of Chinese, especially that time period. You should definitely check out the Painted Veil. It's not mm. the focus of the story, but there is some stuff there. Um, although it's not, <clears throat> it's not necessarily pre- presented in a completely uh, what's the word healthy interaction because the the guy who has sort of the western guy who's gone the most native to use a colonial word is also uh an opium addict but maybe that's how it went there's another film oh god what is it um it just occurred to me it's a it's a french film i believe and it's um i've seen it ah is this the one about the chinese guy the asian or chinese guy and the French girl. Yes. What, yeah, what was that again? We talked about this one. It, it came up in the production process, actually. What was it? Yes. Uh, the Lover, nineteen ninety-two. The Lover. Yeah, that's my film now. Sorry. That, yeah, that's that's my film of choice. Is there anything else intriguing about the production that's worth mentioning? Uh, I guess we could maybe talk about some more of the images. Um, we had a bit, we were, there was one area where we were a bit spoiled for choice. Um, we had a photo of not every single nationality in the eight, uh, the eight nation forces Alliance. fighting the boxers. But we had a lot of them and we couldn't devote a chapter to all of them. So I think the ones that made it into the book were the Germans and the Americans, but we had others, mm-hmm. didn't we? Yeah, there was, um, there was that really wonderful, the, Ger- the did the Germans end up making it in? Like is that is that French officer like leading the charge, right? Uh, not the French officer, the, the German officer leading the charge in the big Prussian flag oh, in the background. I, I thought it made. Did it that in. make it in? Maybe it didn't. Oh, now you've got me questioning myself. There's the one of the the boxer lads, and one of them mm. looks like he's about six. The fist bump, I think. One of them was. Right, we called them the fist bump. Oh no, I'm I'm meaning the one where they they got their swords. Oh yeah. Their spears. Yeah, one of them looks like a kid I used to teach English. <laughs> Uh, what else have we got yeah the americans one of them looks like tom holland from spider-man it's quite striking but they look very american they've got mustache they look like they're from the wild west it's kind of those 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 hollywood types are uh those hollywood types are always uh immortal right so we got immortal keanu reeves and we got immortal there's a nick tom Cage. holland now immortal nick tom Cage. holland yeah 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 exactly so maybe the germans didn't make it maybe i've imagined that <laughs> But uh, the German, I remember, I remember the image you were talking about. It, uh, I'm, I'm sad that that one didn't make it in. That was like a particularly good. Uh... Yeah, there is one thing. I think it might have been a Wikipedia reading session talking about how the battle progressed. And there's a few things that are striking to me about it. One is that a lot of the battle was fought on the walls of Tianjin. A lot of these Chinese cities at the time were walled and. Mm. I think what happened, the battle, because a lot of this, probably more of this book is the is the fighting than the romance, or they're probably evens, and the walls come up in the book, and that's not an invention on Feng's part. I think what happened is the boxers captured Tianjin, and then all these colonial powers teamed up to try and take the city back, and the fighting happened over the walls, and the boxers weren't just steamrolled, um, they were able to defend the walls for quite a, a while, I think, mm. and it was... I believe it was actually the Japanese that managed to dislodge them, uh, that they got a bomb up to the gates or, or something. But yeah, it's um, it's really They mad. have the biggest contingent there, basically. Right, okay. 
because uh, I think all the other it is they say a nation, nation alliance, but I think Austria Hungary's one was only like what two hundred marines or something like guys, that. Twelve guys, no dog. Yeah, and um, and uh, the Japanese had like what twenty thousand people on the ground or something like that. Interesting. Uh, I did not know that. And um, yeah, it, it's you, you read about these kind of. Um, Asian battles and it's always like oh the Japan like there were many many nations there like even I've, I'm just finishing a podcast about the Russian Civil War and at the end of the Russian Civil War pretty much the on the kind of uh, Pacific side of Russia they basically they basically <laughs> multiple nations from the victorious allied powers basically invaded Russia in order to secure a port in order to secure the the kind of um, evacuation of people like the Czech Legion and things like that. And there was always like, oh, they had like Americans and Brits and and French people were there. And then essentially, and then and then the Japanese came with like 100,000 people. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, sorry, lighter matters. In, uh, it, yeah, sorry. You no, can... it's it's interesting how history, history lessons skip over stuff like this. Like I remember mm. first hearing about how the Russian Civil War did have interference from people that didn't want the Bolsheviks to win. And like, whoa, that did not come up at school. Not no. once. No. No. That's why we have undergrads, right? Well, it's why we got free time and, and bookshops <laughs> and libraries and podcasts. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, last question. Now, this, this is the one where we make lots of friends or we make lots of enemies. And you're the perfect person to ask. It's about... Production and design for books, either translated from Chinese or related to China or just Asia or East Asia in one way or another. In the <laughs> production and design, what do you love, what do you hate, and what do you try and sort of either emulate or at least take inspiration from? So we're all about aesthetics. Ooh. Let's talk about the aesthetics. Ooh, okay. Love, 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 love. I love I have such a big canvas. I love that... Um... I mean, I, it, it shocked me even. We recently started doing something on our social media where it was like, okay, let's talk about a theme in Chinese history and then let's present a book, in uh, uh, four of those books in a theme and we we, we, we background them in like the, the places that they, they're happening in. And the one that shook me really was historical China. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm not telling anyone anyone anything new and, and like logically the logic part of my brain and the intellectual part of my brain understands that there is incredible variance between i don't know like qing to the qin and the han to the ming or whatever and but it like my part of my brain never really engaged with that before and I, it, it took the our social media manager anna she was like okay what does uh, how is the the village that uh, final witness Songzi, the final witness uh, uh, protagonist, grew up in, would be different from the imperial palace? And first thing that came to mind was their roof tiles would be gray versus gold. And um, because you're not allowed to have gold roof tiles in historical China unless you're part of the royal family, pretty much. And that there, he came from a scholar family, pretty much very middle class of the context of the time, and he would have roof tiles. Definitely, he wouldn't have like a thatch roof or anything like that, but he would have those kind of grayish green roof tiles that like a lot of Chinese buildings have, right? So Anna put the images together. I think you can see it on our social media now. And yeah, even in historical China, you have rivers and lakes, you have mountain scenery, you have imperial palaces, you have this village in the middle of nowhere, but it's so pretty because it's built onto the side of a hill. And that's just historical China. And that's the, just the four books we did. 
right? And <laughs> right. it's and you, you can think about modern China. I mean, you say modern China, people imagine skyscrapers and you know e-bikes and weird drones and robots and. That yes, that's certainly an aspect of it, but that's only one aspect of it. You're not seeing the guy who's like lived in this kind of socialist um, socialist housing that they built for. Oh, I personally lived in it because I lived for a period with my grandmother. Those kind of mm. like kind of Russian style buildings that, that like like they put up in a hurry. They you don't see like the kind of um, the the hutongs. You don't see the uh, the 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 village in the middle of nowhere, but they they've got a random really modern building sprouting up in the middle of like other things. So it's like part of my job is to kind of read the material and then to, to say like, okay, how is this different than what's come before? And what I love about the job is that that is the canvas I have to work with. I'm very lucky in that respect. Uh, but what I hate about the 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 job is simultaneous that it's just all that nuance gets gets lost, right? I, I think I think I did an interesting exercise once for a, a, a book cover design I, talk, I did once, a book cover design talk I did once, and it's like, you think about a Chinese book in a translation context, what, what pops into your mind? Three things probably, dragons, red, and women in cheap house. And I, I, I didn't believe it until I actually did the exercise, but I basically, I, I think I, I searched for Chinese books or something like that on Amazon, and then I took like the top 100 searches that came up and and put them on a on a on a on an image wall and literally yeah that was it that was that was the top 100 searches i mean you do get variants and stuff like that so it, that's what is that reflective of i mean like cover design people at book cover uh, at publishing companies aren't being deliberately dense they're not they're not like saying they're not being lazy they're not la they're not lazy they work hard they 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 have to produce X Y Z amount of covers per year, and then basically they would look at this and treat it like a problem solving exercise, right? What is the mental headspace that exists right now in the kind of popular culture imagination in a typical Western reader? Like, what is if you flag down ten people on the street, what would they respond on a questionnaire, basically, right? without any prior education? Because that's the that's the market you're dealing with, effectively. And the interesting part of my job is finding the middle ground between those two extremes. It's finding, it's finding and crafting and making image copy blurbs positioning in such a way that A, wouldn't exceed the general education level of a Western reader, but B, have drop enough hints and be interesting enough that they're like, oh, this is different. This is uh, this is not something I've ever seen before, and but it still looks visually interesting to me. And at the same time, finally, and this is the final final thing that it has to pass, otherwise the idea doesn't get passed. Is is that is it faithful to the original subject matter? Is it faithful to is the image you're displaying something that could have plausibly happened in a plot or something like that? And that tightrope is. I, it, I I personally love love it quite frankly, and um, it's a it's a tightrope that uh, I think if trodden on well and if if trodden on well for long enough, will raise people's education levels about the subject matter. And I think the subject matter is incredibly important, right? Because it's China is 
whether you like it or not, one fifth of the world is one fifth of the world. You have to understand it one way or another. So yeah, it's, uh, it's that emulate. Now that's an interesting question. I think, I think that we've had long conversations about this. I'm, I'm actually more curious what you think about it. I don't, I think, you know, my viewpoint well enough. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm not trained in design. I, but I do know my way around InDesign and Photoshop. And I found as, as interesting as it can be when you work entirely from scratch with your own ideas, um, trying to come up with your own aesthetic, some of the best stuff I've made, I've sort of looked at something that looks good and made something that more or less is a match. And then I maybe have made some tweaks so that it's not outright copying. The backs of the books, those are more, well, when I was working with Cinemist Books and ACA, a lot of those were, were sort of my idea. And the nice thing about the back of a book is you rarely would want to reinvent the wheel. You're just mm. looking for um, a sort of reasonable way to lay out maybe a hook line, a blurb, or some some praise quotes. And other books are, are a great sort of model because although there is a fundamental, what am I trying to say? There's a fundamental structure that doesn't change. There are infinite, infinity ways you can vary that, like to use small caps uh, for the name of a, of a publication giving a praise quote and then italicize the praise quote? Do you differentiate them some other way? Do you use different colors? Um, I realize I'm kind of giving a very boring answer. Tell them about the postcard. Tell them about the postcard. Yeah, so I, I don't know if I had seen this sort of thing on other book covers. I must have, but I can't think of any books where, where um, I would have an immediate reference point. But we, we took a sort of an invite card that would have been more or less from the Times. We put it at an angle and we put our hook line and blurb on that. I don't remember. Was this your idea? I think it was a mutual thing. It was like, I remember us two talking about like hotels. That's all I remember. Hmm. It was like, it was like those kind of like, sorry, we missed you cards at the hotels. And yeah. um, you always get like, a I don't know the renaissance Tianjin or whatever and um and you get those uh cars where it's got beautiful kind of hotel stationery and letterhead on it and um and then they write like oh so-and-so called you when and when uh would you please call them back on xyz right i remember thinking like there must have been hotels back in Tianjin in the day and I mean, it, that's a foolish assumption to make probably, but I think we did it subtly enough where we can get away with it. But um, basically it's a, it's a French story. I remember us two researching whether, we called it Tenzin, which is the French spelling of the Tenzin Shin, I believe. And then, wait, did I end up getting covered by the barcode? No, it's there, Tenzin China. Is that, okay, that's funny. And, um, and yeah, it's uh, we 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 Google we we were searching like okay, is Tianjin would the French have called Tianjin Tianjin at the time? Because I believe the French spelling now is different. I want to say, I think they would probably just use Pinyin. But from as far as I'm aware, um, this may have also been the Wade Giles spelling. So this might have been what right. English speakers were calling Tianjin at the time as well. Right, right, right. And yeah, like it's a little. Effectively, movie dressing prop, right? Um, to get the the to subtly un, to nudge the reader in that direction, and to kind of get their their headspace into that world, and it probably like, let's face it, nobody noticed that small detail. Not <laughs> but consciously, but exactly consciously, it worked. Yeah, so it's um, 
but that was the result of what half an hour to an hour of work between us two and but i i personally think that that at least in my heart i sleep better at night knowing that that's there it's it's a nice little touch yeah i think trying to answer properly about design on books um so i've not have i done i've done a few minor not proper publishing jobs trying to work out book front covers but the thing where i've emulated other designs the most has actually been the uh, art for my patreon bonus episodes because i don't really have a template to work from and i used to do very simple geometric sort of patterns because they're easy Mm -hmm. to do off the cuff but i found by emulating other book covers you can do cool stuff but i'm trying to think about books translated from chinese to english Uh, the covers that i got became aware very quickly when I was doing my uh, master's dissertation, trying to look for, trying to look at how much, if at all, translated Chinese science fiction was breaking the mold. First, I had to find out what the mold was. And the thing that struck me was, uh, if you look for like Chinese fiction on Amazon or where, or Google or what have you, you'd get a lot of books, often by white women, or um, just as often, more or less as often, by um people from the Chinese diaspora in the States of these sort of romantic stories about young women and the cover would be a mask covering about half <laughs> or three quarters of their face and their face would be halfway off the cover. A so veil, could... a light shining through a veil and the only thing that comes through is the red lipstick kind of and, thing. And the eye. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think beyond that, yeah, the tropes you described are definitely on the covers. I think the most predictable covers would often be the non-fiction books often by Mm -hmm. some american academic explaining why communist china's bad or why it's about to collapse Mm -hmm. not always a lot of them are much better than that but there's a lot of red on red and yellow on those for Mm -hmm. sure which sort of sort of shows you how the politics feeds into the book cover design because those aren't just the colors of i think for the minds of chinese a lot of people in mainland china i spoke to that's just the colors of the flag uh Mm. but um that's it's almost it's almost as if they don't have like one of those you know you know those three D lenses, where it's like one of the planes is blue, one of the planes is red. I think I like to think that like in the when when looking at a Chinese book, both of those lenses are red, and then right. that's just how that's how designers look at the situation. But that's that's mm. me. That's 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 just yeah. That's I'm just... very I'm very torn here though. Red's my favorite color, so it um... is a good color. It is a good color, and it yeah. should be deployed. In the service of Chinese covers, that's I I do definitely believe that. But is it being deployed in the context that in a context that makes sense in the story that you're trying to describe with your cover? I mean, that's that's the question to answer, right? If it's right, if if your book is about I don't know, like recently we did one that's like uh, I think Joe Dyson's Longevity Park. It's about aging in China, and as you age, do you still even see red? You mean you know like do do yes yeah, you, you do <laughs> you do but like the don't colors like I've personally noticed that I don't my the colors I'm looking at now now that I'm thirty is not as vivid as I once oh. remember it being I mean like like do do I do I do I still do I still see the same shade of red that I did when I was twenty like I don't think so mm. and and yeah my eyes have been really bad recently that's just a that's just book fair that's just book fair. But, Book fair was crazy, uh, well, but um, I have ocular privilege. I haven't had any eye <laughs> problems yet. Oh well, you're very lucky. 
And yeah, like we we did deploy red in that cover. I mean, it's we we, we deployed a red on L and the P, I believe, yeah, you know, to differentiate uh, long longevity's long and P park. And but other than that, red really didn't make sense for the context of that cover. At least it didn't seem like to me. And uh, we yeah, that we we I th I think we did it subtly enough. But um, we would welcome all feedback. Please send me your emails. If you think that we did an atrocious job on that cover, no, uh, I'd love to hear it. Actually, that's a good one, and that one is on my bookshelf, and it has a spine facing me, and it's got a good spine. I think the the white on it's white, white, and a little bit of red on black works pretty well. Mm. That's probably, I don't, I think a thing I would like to see more on um, Chinese book covers is like black and white with specks of red, which is not exactly a new idea. Uh, my dad's book is like that. The the one that Christopher Payne translated, uh, decoded. I think it's cream back white text, red sash. I think if I remember, I want to say, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. To to me, that one's a nice one because it, it's it's an aesthetic people recognize that they'll pick it up as a cue for a book that might be a little bit edgy, but it also has a bit of a pedigree in traditional Chinese art with Shan Shui mm. paintings, which will be pretty much either hardcore black and white or fairly faded colors and then often a little mm. red stamp on them. Mm. Um, I've got a really nice book that I posted a picture of in the Paper Republic group chat recently actually of uh, the shadow book of Ji Yun, which is a very interesting sort of uh, translation by uh, Yi Ziyu and John Branscombe Yu. I think, I think that's the order of the names there but mm -hmm. I may be wrong. And that has, it's like they're going for a bit of a horror vibe and they've made great use of um, of the black, black and white with a dash of red. It looks good. Oh, that is good. So, I, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it now. That is, oh, the typography on that is good too. It's pretty sick. Yeah. 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 Oh, people don't think about it, but like we, 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 we stress so much about the fonts and stuff like that that it ends up getting it on. Mm, no, fonts are, fonts are a great thing to go mad about two great examples i mean for that one i think i think i ended up digging out like a, a hotel from london or something or france or something like that the font the font that that font that's on the cover right now is i think i forget what it is skedaddle i, I believe it's called and um it's basically it's modeled after these old hotel fonts that you get from like london to paris and things like that from the time period that kind of turned up in the research. We did our best to kind of mirror the um, mirror the uh, mirror the, the 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 text that would come out of that. And then another example again, linking back to Longevity Park, it's an optician's font. So basically, it's the font you see in the optician's office when you um, when you try to read. Uh, it's like when you when they cover one of your eyes, you know, it's like read me the third character on the fourth line or whatever. And um, yeah, that, that's the font that's been specially designed for the optician's office. And again, that book's about aging, losing your sight, and things like that. And we think that's appropriate. I've just looked up Skedaddle online. This is rather funny. So as well as all the... It's, I think it's an all-caps font. I don't think it has lowercase. But as well as all... So it has a full Latin alphabet of A to Z. It has numbers. It has various punctuation marks. It has the accents and umlauts and so on. And then it has some very of-its-time... Uh, special characters. I'll share this with you, Daniel, in the Zoom chat, and I'll pop it in the show notes for listeners. It's got some uh, kind of Monty Python-looking pointy fingers. <laughs> it's a shame we didn't find a way to use those. Next time around, maybe. 
Oh god, I I just saw it. You can totally imagine that, like in like like in like a train station, can't you? Like like an oldy old timey train station or old timey restaurant or something like. That. You can imagine that in a in a Paris restaurant, definitely. Well, I can. Sad to say, I can probably imagine it being used on some signs helping people segregate themselves. Mm. But yeah. Well, well we, we're all about positivity around here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sunshine and rainbows. Um, they have an at symbol. You see that? Oh. That's new. Where's that? Oh, oh, 064. Oh, that's that's a kind of a Art Deco <laughs> looking thing. That's Or it's snuck in from the 22nd century by mistake. Or it has a yen symbol, even. A yen, a oh, what? No, is that a yen or a yuan? Two dashes, that's yuan. Um, oh, interesting. So one dash, one score is yen. Two for Yeah. I did not know that. Interesting. Sorry, I'm a, I'm a bit of a type, type nerd. Type, type, typography nerd? Typography nerd. But not, not as much as... Actually, don't let Renee hear you say that. Renee is the person that handles... Our production now. She she studied typography in a in a in in Reading, I believe. Oh, cool. And um, yeah, I I I keep saying terms that I think are right, and then she would quietly correct me, and then I'm like, oh, right, sorry. So long as it's quiet. Mm. Right. Um, I guess we can go to the miscellaneous section now, because you know we're talking about dashes in yen and yuan symbols. We're definitely in minutia and miscellany. So. <laughs> First miscellaneous question. It's a Chinese word of the day to suggest, and I see what your your suggestion is in the notes here. Perfect. So, can you talk us uh, through early or uh, link to an earlier theme? Geng Zinian. I think we already covered that. But um, what's the? I guess what's the question? The key question is what is the next Geng Zinian? Twenty two thousand and eighty. I guess it'll be like, you know, Amazon's. Uh, AI goes rogue and invades our Oculus Rifts, and we all go crazy, right? So we it's go uh, to the the Hell Realm uh, for sixty years. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I I, I didn't know about it till before doing this book. Actually, Olivia pointed it out to me. So it's um, it's uh, it it's we. I believe I believe she wrote. I believe her foreword is written based on that, right? Yeah, yeah. She. It's the one that. Uh, I think we may have tinkered with slightly, but yeah, it explains what what the guns and guns that it's the is. that it's the metal rat. So I think, am I right here that there are twelve Chinese zodiac animals and there are five elements? So that's five times twelve, sixty, and it cycles yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, and right. then if I remember, I I I knew it at the time when we did research on it, but now now that knowledge has completely slipped from my mind. Um. Besides that, I have no more useful information about it. It's like metal rat, and then there is we touched it. It's interesting how these things feed into each other, right? Because we 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 touched the, on the trigrams here, and then the immediate after the book after the Sons of Red Lake, there was all that. The entire book structure was modeled on the trigram, right? Yes. So water, it, it was like divided into two parts, and then there was like water, earth, and and it, it's a cycle that it's a the, the five cycles that like. It begins with water and ends with water, basically. And it's um, it's uh, we ended up using the Chinese characters for them for the little chapter headings. So yeah, it's interesting how they feed into each other. I mean, I I, I won't assume that Ying's got a Machiavellian plan. So Ying is the chief publisher of ACA Publishing. 
I won't assume that Ying's got a Machiavellian plan to say like, oh, okay, I'll just do this book first and then the knowledge they'll gain from that book will feed into the next book, etc., etc. She's not playing 4D chess. <laughs> or is she? We don't know, do we? That's... You've been in those conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chess master Ying. Um, right, that's our word of the day. I don't think I got anything else clever to say about that one. Well, well, for 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 your for your late millennial, early Gen Z readers, uh, when uh, when two thousand eighty comes around, please comment in the thread below on of the the comment section of this podcast episode what actually happened. Yeah, go on to the last remnants of the internet that you'll log into through a phone underground system of underground wires that survived the third fuel war. Yeah, and um, it won't be fuel. It won't be fuel. It'll be something silly like. I don't know, popcorn or whatever. Popcorn's fuel if you burn it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll so, yeah, probably the, be at that stage by then. The the, the fifth uh, Sino-Ukrainian popcorn war. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, just pick two random countries to fight. It's uh, the Ghana, the Ghana Confederacy versus the 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 Malaysian the, alliance. Yeah, I like that. The tea, like that. the milk tea alliance. The Milky Alliance, and then they're they're fighting over the last scraps of popcorn resources mined out of the popcorn mines, the last oh, kernels, the 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 last popcorn, the last kernel mines of Ohio. Yep, there it is. I think honestly, the way it's going, I think um, the world will be divided up into what Disney Corp, uh, Amazon, Bezos Corp. Well, yeah. Well, they're maneuvering away, aren't they? They're going to be the next plane of existence. The met the meta. No, that's Zuckberg. Oh, what did you say? Bezos Corp. Clearly, I'm not awake. Yeah, <laughs> Bezos Corp. They'll rule the skies with their delivery drones. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So, we've got that. To, well, if we live long enough, we'll have that to look forward to. I personally mm-hmm. will be in the ground. I, I personally look forward to our Baidu overlords. <laughs> mm, yes. Do Corp. <laughs> yeah, you get a, that little paw logo stamped onto your head. Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, and I will not elaborate. Okay, next next one. Uh, which piece of music to pair um, a looking glass world to? Um, right. Now, there's a get-out clause here. If no, mu- no music springs to mind, uh, other cultural artifacts will do. So do you have um, anything that you would pair oh, this one I'm with? I'm very appreciative of that book-out clause, Angus, because uh, my, my music since getting out of university has been atrocious, my music choices. Simply because yeah. I haven't had the time. Like, I'm stuck listening to early noughts pop currently. So I, know, it's... I really know the feeling. Uh, I used to very meticulously rip DVDs and store them in a little library on my hard drive. And I spent By years... rip, you mean you buy from his master's voice, correct? Oh, I was buying secondhand yeah. and firsthand CDs. And then, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're, 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 we're publishers around here. We respect copyright, correct, Angus? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, with my NFT collection, I trade that for MP3 files, um, and I think also being abroad didn't help. I didn't really. Um, Ooh, I don't know. I like just buying legit music in China is hard, especially yeah. at that time. Maybe I don't know if you have this experience, but going and living abroad, some some parts of your progress through life accelerate, other things kind of stay on pause. And one of the more minor things for me was keeping a pace with music and. Adding to my dragon sword of audio files on my hard drive. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm gonna have to uh, invoke that clause, I'm afraid, because uh, 
there's a lot of things I'm comfortable sharing. My awful taste in music is not one of them. Uh, I'm gonna say The Lover by Claude Berry. Produced by Claude Berry, directed by Jean-Claude Annard. I, I, I did not know that. I only watched the film. But it is pretty much a the at least the and the in the broader strokes the uh, the 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 the, f the film itself is a is a is a is a mirror of what happened in the story and you get Tony Lin for your pleasure. So something we didn't mention uh, talking about Looking Glass World is that there's a bit of an age gap between the two lovers. It's not a horrific one, but it is something that might make readers' eyes pop slightly. So Shinya is 16, Jue is not an old man, but he is a little bit older, and he's married. We didn't mention mm. that. Mm. Um, he's in a, what is it, sort of amicable, but not passionate relationship, and he, he, he goes off he's his in his adventure. A, he's, in, he's, he's, in a, he's in a socially acceptable marriage for his context, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this film, The Lover, I don't know what the age gap is, but it does look I don't know more provocative maybe partly because it's visual 15 and versus 32 so, yeah so, illegal uh, <laughs> yes very illegal much so. almost everywhere and another thing this is i don't know this is kind of a delicate one but um if you've been uh, a foreigner in china and you are are uh, and you're doing a tally of the intercultural relationships you see between chinese people and foreigners it's going to be really, 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 really stacked towards white guy, Chinese woman. And in both mm. these stories, we've, we've got the inverse, where the, it's the woman that's the, the European. I guess they're both French. And then mm. the guy, I, what is, is this one, he's, is he Malaysian Chinese in this film? Vietnamese Chinese, I believe. Vietnamese Chinese, right, okay. Mm. Yeah, so I don't know, I didn't really have any thoughts on that. But it's, it's just—I mean, it, it makes it at, stand out to me a little bit. At that in in that in that particular context of the story, I mean, he pretty much—I would say like his life is dictated by. Um, I mean, the, we're extending a podcast quite a bit, but like, um, his 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 life is dictated by these European rules imposed on top of a Chinese city, right? I mean, you go to Ho Chi Minh City today, there is still a there is still a Louis Pasteur Street, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in 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 that no not louis pasteur street louis pasteur rue and i'm pretty sure it's the same in shanghai right there's still european names to certain street names if there are they've all been sort of signified um mm. may, maybe but i know a lot of them have been renamed mm. uh, to just like chinese province names but maybe there are some which are transliterations or translation translations but there's mm. nothing there's no signage that tells you so if you, if you see what i mean I don't know. It's a, the the maybe maybe the, the the experience of the main character of the film, the lover, is not so Tony Leon is not that dissimilar to, to our protagonist. Or at least I like to think that. Yeah, I, I got <laughs> nothing else very clever to say about that because I've not exactly. seen the film. But I do have a piece of music that I would pair, and this is speaking of music tastes being stuck in the sort of the 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 noughties, um, stuck in like high school, post high school. I picked a song by one of my favorite teenage bands that's still one of my favorite bands, Coheed and Cambria. It's about as uncool as you can get, but I'll explain why I've picked this song. So it's called No World For Tomorrow. It's five whole minutes long, and it's about sort of rising up to, I think, 
win a rebellion. The story is basically stolen from Star Wars. It's that sort of a rebellion. The the um the band Code in Cambria, I, with one exception, every album has been a concept album telling the story that the uh, frontman Claudio Sanchez has also told through graphic novels that he's made. Although just to make things more convoluted and complicated, the graphic novels lag behind the music quite severely. Most of the story you can only piece together through lyrics and, and music rather than actually clearly understanding what it means through through the through the uh, as yet unpublished graphic novels. But anyway, this song it's all about sort of going for it, closing in, trying to win the rebellion and end. And it's got a very romantic feel. There's like a line in the chorus, young brothers and sisters, there's a world let me look it up actually. There's a world worth of work and a need for you. Oh, change is coming. Feel these doors now closing in. Is there a no, is there no world for tomorrow if we wait for today? So as well as um, I think I think the story goes in in this in in this guy's Star Wars esque fantasy that saving the world is also going to mean bringing about its end, triggering some kind of apocalypse. So as well as this hopeful upbeat feeling. There's this sort of feeling of apocalypse and doom, and you can kind of see that on the album cover for for the album. This is part of, and to me, that did capture something from the book, where there's hopefulness in the form of the young romance, but also the boxers are feeling pretty optimistic about their chances, uh, perhaps foolishly. One of the conversations I remember us having at the end, we really, I remember the, for the blur, we really struggled with the end, right? Like we knew we what sentence we wanted it to end on the ashes of what might have been that was like a really good sentence, but we weren't mm. really sure how to get there. I remember, I remember that being a problem, and the the thing there is is that as with the end of a blurb, you're always talking about why the author should why the why the why why the uh, reader should pick up the book, right? And the it's always about selling a possibility. Because you don't want to do a synopsis. If you're doing a synopsis and a blurb, you're, you're doing the you're doing you're not doing a blurb basically. Why and why buy the book? Exactly. So I remember thinking like, okay, like that. That's why that kind of like the paradise of what might have been line was so genius is because it's like we know where they're gonna end up. What's the possibility we're selling? You know, and yeah, I, I see where you I see where you're going with it. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, there was a word I really wanted to keep in the drafts, and it did survive. It was conflagration. So it's a synonym for fire, but it's it's a really extreme word. Um, <laughs> you don't often see it. Yeah, it's a bit... Words have power levels, mm. and this is a high power level word. Mm. Um, so the... What is it? Oxford Dictionary says a conflagration is an extensive fire which destroys a great deal of land or property. But we got a Cambridge definition which gives the second meaning, which is a large and violent event, such as a war involving uh, a lot of people. And 
Yeah, when when the shit hits the fan in the book, it's not a war story, but it does really hit the fan. We we could have a we could have another two hour conversation about like all of this and all the conversations we had way back when. Yeah, I think a thing I've said on the show before is my impression when I first read a book, a complete book of Chinese history, and then living in the country, reading, you know, visiting museums. A thing that was burned into my mind was when shit hits the fan historically in China, it really there's two modes, the right? Peaceful growth or shit hitting the fan. Yes, and piles of bodies very often, and that's that's where that's the climax. Really, mm. it's a big, bloody battle, and we get. A, I won't. I guess I won't spoil how one of the characters gets dragged into it, but that's one of my favorite parts of the book, where um, you get like the behind the front line picture of what might have been going on, and then you get taken into it, and it gets quite brutal. Quite quickly, mm, indeed. Yeah. Okay. This takes us really nicely onto the bonus question, the question for Patreon. So, for for you um, listeners listening to the just the generic episode, this will be scrambled. If you want to go hear it, what me and Daniel said in response to this question, it'll be up on the Patreon feed, queued up at whatever particular date the queue lands it on. But it will it will be up there on the Patreon for posterity. So the question is, Daniel. Which events from Chinese or world history, you, whatever you like, uh, do you find really moving? Like, does any of it make something move in you, or does it all feel kind of abstracted and in the past? It's awful, and I guess that does bring it back to Looking Glass World. Mm. They're two slightly irresponsible, but very idealistic people. Sun- idealistic people who are doing something brave. And get nothing but trouble for their trouble. Or maybe like yeah, that, maybe like production designers and podcast hosts doing, trying to do infor, uh, trying to bring uh, Chinese literature to uh, to a masses and the optimistic dream of that. And let's let. Where's my mansion? Where the <laughs> hell is my mansion? Well, I'm just praying for the not the uh, the, the the excrement sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't. I think the worst I've got is um, some snarky comments on youtube ah, that's it. ah no that's very modern it's very modern yes <laughs> no um I've, I've not been thrown in jail for podcasting yet but well there's, give, there's still give a couple of years right yeah <laughs> or, or you know even twitter jail i'm yet to be hit by a twitter storm but there is well, always well, now time. you're just now you're just calling for it now yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes well the 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 um i'm sure Something in our predictions about how the world is going to end will have upset someone. Mm. Someone from Bezos Corp or the Ghana Alliance. Of milk teas. The popcorn miners. <laughs> the milk popcorn miners of Ohio. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, end of the bonus question. Back to our regular programming. Uh, so we got to the wrap-up questions now. Uh, so here's, a, here's the golden question for anyone trying to sell the book. Where can people buy the book? You can buy it now on our website. It's brand new and shiny and it can handle payment processing now, which was a big issue before. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm sure Angus would be so kind to link the link uh, to uh, Looking Glass World on our website. You can buy it both on ebook and hardback on there. If you do buy the hardback, I do recommend flipping the dust jacket off and mm. having a look at the inside, the cloth bound book inside. We, we, we spend a lot of effort on that. And yeah. uh, alternatively, it is 
available where books are sold in the UK. So if you live near an independent bookshop that you really like, uh, go there with the the author name and the uh, and the uh, the book name, and I'm sure they can help you with that. Or alternatively, if you want to get really technical and you really want to show you don't want to waste a trip to a bookshop, the ISBN number, which is uh, the the three the, the the chain of thirteen numbers on the back of the book, which uh, will definitely identify the the right book for you. Yep. Yeah, the in the show notes in the just for listeners here, there'll be a description of the book and there'll be links where you see the book name and the author name. There'll be a link, the the link that's you know the words that say a looking glass world. That link that'll take you to this book's entry on Sinos, the Sinos Books website. But I'll also put sinosbooks.com into the mention in the show as well because it's very visually speaking of aesthetics and the color red. It's a very aesthetically pleasing website, which I think is a, on a red and white color scene. Red, white, and gray. It is the color code for the red is DC363D on the Adobe RGB scale. It is yeah. uh, it is part of the house style. Uh, I, I, it's one of my top 10 favorite reds. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Angus. It's number seven, actually, though. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. What, what was the That's first one? I said top 10 and not, not, not top five. Ah. Well, I know, I know the... Um, the one I use for the podcast off by heart, it's a, it's a BE0000, but I found I prefer darker ones often, but I haven't settled on a dark. It prints better. That's why. The bright the right. bright reds on the CMYK scale, the, especially with machines that they use them, they it, the more extreme on the end you go, the harder it is to replicate, basically. So... If you want to have it appear similar between uh, on a screen versus um, on printed paper, go dar- slightly darker, and then that what that way it prints better, basically. Yeah, for all you people out there like me who print your podcasts, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do have one more exciting thing to mention. Do you mind if I do another plug? It, it... I was about to say yes, but that would be like yes, I mind. Oh, so no, I don't mind. That's. Which means you That's can do a it. Double negative? Is that a double negative? Do you, do you mind is such a confusing question? <laughs> um, I don't know why why we haven't abolished that one. Well, English, right? Well, when 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 Chinese literature dictates the the movement of English, and we, we have to bring import loads of loan words from Chinese. Uh, do you mind? Will be the first to go. Yeah. We'll, we'll be. Ripping. I call that dar- turning the kai. <laughs> 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 Uh, um, right, and the other thing is is that we've recently started a subscription scheme. It is uh, six books a year, and you get them as we produce them. So roughly, you get what, one new book every two year, two months or so. And basically, it's the best of our list. Basically, you get them in beautiful hardback form. You get a beautiful uh, bookmark with it, which if you've been paying attention to our social media feed, uh, I've personally been making. And uh, you get uh, you get them in advance slightly to the publication date, and then you also get the free ebook along with it, unless you purchase the ebook subscription, at which point you only get the ebook. But yeah, uh, a Looking Glass World is the next book on the list. It is being dispatched, I believe, near end of April, early May. So yeah, they'll be in the description below the subscription link. It is. Uh, the big thing that we're going to announce later on in May is is that it's already part of the web program now already, but every purchase you make of a subscription of a yearly subscription of a yearly subscription you actually make a donation towards Paper Republic as well. 
So it was to help support the work they're doing. Marvelous. Okay. And the last wrap-up question. Is there anything else anywhere you'd like to direct listeners to? For example, if they like this book, what other books could they read? So we have a couple of other Fonzie ties coming down the pipeline. Uh, October this year, we're launching Purgatory and Paradise. It is uh, Fengzi Tai's interview of Han Mei Lin about his experiences during the Cultural Revolution. And that is coming where I believe we're jointly launching that book with the Sotheby's Institute of Art, uh, with their East Asian art department. They're really interested in Han Mei Lin. Uh, so that's one. And then the next year, our, uh, one of the subscription titles for the next year is uh, our book called The Artists, which is currently a production name. But um, it is the... It is uh, a, the next big Feng Tai fiction title, basically. So keep your eyes peeled for that on our socials. All right. And I'll name drop a book I kept meaning to uh, mention and forgetting during our conversation. Um, it's one that has been on my shelf since I th- possibly before I started the show, or at least around when I started. It's Yan Lianke's uh, Lenin's Kisses, or Shuo Hua in Chinese. And the reason I'm mentioning that is, well, one, I'm reading it just now, but two, it also mentions Gong Zi. Really? I did um, not know that. Yeah that, yeah, that cover design is a good use of red, I must say, because it's yes, um, and I think it might be Avenir the font because I was trying to replicate it and I was trying oh, to really? get That's um, a sans serif font that was as close a match as I could, and I think I went in thinking it would be Futura, but no. Do you use Dafont? No, the, the app. I used to, and then I I didn't use it very much, so I deleted it. But yeah, the the L on that font that bought the horizontal line is fairly long but the futura's l that horizontal line is short so i think it was avenir anyway um it mentions gongzi here and i don't i don't know if yan nyanka counts as a scarlet writer but i think he is in that generation of post-cultural revolution writers who were either able to write or chose to write about topics that would not have been on the table when when mao was in charge um so it sort of through metaphors and directly talks a bit about some of like you know the famines talks about the the mishap with iron um under the great leap forward which is tragic comedy at its best i guess um and i'm enjoying the book more than i thought i might i'm sticking with it and it's i'm liking it better than i like the day the day the sun died so yeah that's my that's my one plug that's all really for me uh is there anything at all we didn't hit on daniel that that you'd like to hit on uh no uh, i think you've done a brilliant job angus keep it up and oh follow us on socials cnos books at cnos books on twitter facebook instagram and our new tiktok uh which we're working on at the moment but we haven't really quite figured out a strategy yet so watch that space yeah if you want to see daniel dance uh do you do fortnite dances on there that? Uh, I, I do the floss i i do the floss i do the uh i do I, the floss is at this point dated i yeah yeah, that's a little bit 2016. Yeah, probably. Well, well, I'm old. What did the, the Zoomers do now? We, we need to. We, you, you need. You need. <laughs> they, you need to. You need to hire a Zoomer intern to figure that out. I guess a- ASAP. I think the Zoomers are. They they hide in their room because they're quarantined from school, uh, and their mental health degenerates. But they do listen to podcasts. So yeah, Angus is actually uh, putting a job out in the description below for a for a for an intern position at the. Uh, at the, is that is that taking the job to joke too far? That's taking the joke too far, isn't it? No, we don't. Yeah, we don't. <laughs> I don't let any Zoomers near me. <laughs> I have a little sister who is Zoomer, and that's enough. 
I hate them. <laughs> oh well, well, now you just no. completely discriminated <laughs> against your future uh, customer base. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. I put an expiry date on the show. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't hate the Zoomers, but I don't know how many listen. Probably. No. Well, you should probably check that after the. You should probably check the statistics after this. Yeah, we'll do a generation poll. See how many of us are boomers or zoomers, yeah, and, or... and then and then re- issue a retraction episode. Yeah, the three-hour apology episode. So, oh god, no, I'm gonna get in trouble as well. I'm gonna stop talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right. Farewell, Daniel. Yes. Saijian and all that jazz. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I think that was a good one. To be honest, I'll take any excuse to talk with Daniel, as you may have gleaned from that conversation. I'm going to try and go easy on the plugs this time. I'll just rattle off the social media for the show. We have an Instagram. It's at Trichrific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. You can follow just me on Twitter. I'm at Angus Likes Words. There's a link to the show's Discord in the show notes. If you use Discord and want to talk to other fans, that's the place to go. If you'd like to support the show tangibly and listen to the going on something like 80 bonus episodes I've recorded, then you can just go to patreon.com slash churchific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. The bonus question I snipped out of this episode and from all the other episodes will be going up there or have already gone up there. So hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of stuff. If you've binged absolutely every episode of this show like a madman or madwoman or mad being, then there's more for you up there. So that's nice, isn't it? Um, that is all, really. I think I'll just say the best thing you can do for the show. That's what we'll close with. So the best thing you can do for the show, tell your friends, tell your family, spread the word. Maybe don't tell your family. Depends on the episode, really. But <laughs> um, tell tell whoever you like about the show. Tell your secret lover. And if you don't have a secret lover, look through the looking glass or the mirror, rather, and tell yourself. Love yourselves, people. And on that note, Zai Jian. <laughs>